Hello, Village. You're listening to Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast hosted by Forward Promise. If you don't know us, we're social change advocates focused on reclaiming the humanity of boys and young men of color and supporting the villages that nurture them. In our podcast, we'll talk with direct service practitioners, young people, researchers, and leaders in philanthropy, offering a deeper understanding of both the issues facing boys and young men of color and quality solutions for their healing, growing, and thriving. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to an important episode in our series, highlighting the voices of our grantees, fellows, and other stakeholders, and how they are pivoting their work in the face of this COVID-19 outbreak. We work with some phenomenal people who are fully committed to ensuring that boys and young men of color and their villages successfully emerge on the other side of this. This pandemic is exposing the disproportionate struggle faced by communities of color that is and always has been rooted in a history of dehumanization, racism, and colonization. These factors make boys and young men of color and their villages more vulnerable to illness, violence, and financial ruin. So we're dedicating these first episodes to sharing the issues and the solutions they've developed. We invite you to be thinking about sharing, and doing what you can to ensure that boys and young men of color heal, grow, and thrive, both during this crisis and beyond. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Howard Stevenson, and I am the co-director of the Forward Promise National Program Office, which is a NPO supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And in many respects, like many of you watching, the Forward Promise Village of grantees, fellows, and the National Advisory Committee members, we've been pivoting in these past few weeks to respond to the rapidly unfolding multifaceted crises created by the COVID-19 pandemic. Our most vulnerable communities and populations have been hit hard by this crisis, and we wanted to talk to those who directly serve them about how their work is being impacted and how they are responding. Their greatest challenges and highest hopes are also what we're interested in and how they're managing in the midst of all of this. So in many respects, uh, we're very happy to have with us today um, Mr. Michael Mayun, uh, who is the Executive Director of the Asian Counseling and Referral Service in Seattle, Washington. Before starting in December 2018, Michael spent 17 years leading Asia, Inc., in Ohio advocating for the empowerment and rights of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, immigrants and refugees at local, statewide and national levels. ACRS promotes social justice and the well-being and empowerment of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and other underserved communities, including immigrants, refugees and American born. By developing, providing and advocating for innovative, effective, and efficient community-based multilingual and multicultural services. Good morning, Michael, and we're so happy to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Stevenson. Great to be here. So just to begin, in general, we're asking everyone, but what would you say, given the work that you are doing in Seattle and other places, what impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on the community that your organization serves, and how have you all responded? Yes, thanks for that question. So as many of you know, in 
the United States. The first case of COVID-19 took place here in Washington State on the east side, just on the east side of Seattle. And immediately following that, and then even prior to that, when the cases were documented in Wuhan, China, we saw immediate impact in our communities locally. So for example, local businesses that were Asian and Pacific Islander run and owned um, saw dramatic reductions in business patrons. So in the Chinatown International District here in Seattle, roughly 20 to 70% reduction in businesses in many of the restaurants that are in that area. Um, and this was early indication of just the, the, I would say the tip of the iceberg as far as the cascading impact, adverse impact on our communities. Following that, we began to document not only locally, but also nationally, the increased rates of bias, hate crimes, and discrimination occurring. And it is from very um, small microaggressions where individuals may be coughing on an Asian person to more brutal uh, act actions, such as the one in Midland, Texas, where a uh, father and a child was uh, slashed uh, with a knife um, mm -hmm. at a Sam's Club because they were Asian American Pacific Islander. Uh, following these very concerning stories and news, our organization, along with other community leaders in the Asian American Pacific Islander community, along with our county leadership and our city leadership and public health, we began this effort to raise awareness around the incidents of bias, hate crimes, and to provide tools and resources to our communities on how to report it, um, how to support each other during this very challenging time. We also <clears throat> saw that the impact of COVID-19 with restaurants and other retail and businesses closing has had a disproportionate impact on our communities who are a large part of the workforce for retail, hospitality, and other service industry. And mm -hmm. because of their unemployment situation, many of them had challenges with access to food and having food security. And this was another important and emerging need in our community as far as how this COVID-19 has um, affected us locally. You know, Michael, we were talking earlier about uh, situations regarding both food insecurity, language challenges, and you were even sharing how it's affected you as a leader. Could you talk and give an example of how, how this is in the way that you were talking earlier? Yes. So I think many of us here in this region, but also across the country who are Asian American and Pacific Islander, are feeling the sense of weight of concern for their own safety, for their family's safety, and their community's safety. And personally speaking, I'm finding myself more and more when I'm out to attend to my essential services in terms of grocery shopping or filling the car with gas that I'm looking over my shoulders or feeling less comfortable, less safe um, in that environment. And I just can't imagine, and this is something that we're deeply concerned about as an organization and as a community, how those who are immigrants and refugees, those who are newly arrived, 
who are limited English proficient, who have cultural barriers. I can't imagine the, the level of fear and safety, the less feeling of less safe that they feel because of the mm -hmm. current situation. On top of that, you have a situation where families who have directly impacted individuals who are hospitalized, who are sick at home and are quarantined, and that there is this concern around who is there to support and taking care of them, doing the grocery shopping and others. And I recall recently receiving a communication via email from a young person from our community that learned that their relative had been tested COVID positive and had to be hospitalized. And that relative's spouse was homebound. She was isolated, could not go out. She could not speak English well. In addition, because this young person had um, visited this relative, both he and his mother were required to be quarantined at home and could not leave for two weeks straight. And mm -hmm. this person had reached out desperately asking for help, however possible from community-based organizations and others, because they didn't have food in the kitchen pantry. Mm -hmm. Their relative could not go out either and couldn't access food and no one was able to bring food to them. And it was clear to me that this young person played a, a big role in caregiving to this fam to his his mother and to his relatives. So I think about that and then times it by a hundred, times it by a thousand, where many of our young folks in our community are taking on this immense responsibility mm. to take care of their family members during this time. And yep. It is not only inspiring, but it is also one where we need community support to help this individual and many others uh, to carry out that responsibility. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And as you're talking, just the pain and hearing uh, how people have not just a worry about um, the health issues and the virus, but the actual taking care of loved ones um, and communicating uh, is so important. How has this uh, maybe shifted the way you, you work with your staff or operate as an organization and, and how you serve these families? So with our governor here implementing a order for stay home, stay healthy, we have been required to as much as possible do maximize telecommuting. And at an, or, an organization that provides care that supports and heals individuals through therapy and counseling and other services, that touch is really difficult to replicate uh, if you're not doing that directly in person. However, our staff have become very nimble and creative and have transitioned to provide much of those services remotely. In the instance that we're not able to, we've prioritized those with severe and acute cases of need um, and to arrange those uh, individuals to come to our office for care. One of the difficult things is for us as a multi-service organization that it provides services, including those services to young folks, is that 
it's been very difficult to create community remotely because many of our young folks are at home and they also have parents around and behind them, hovering over them, and it's very difficult for them to connect. And our team has been using resources like uh, video chat and texting and other means to reach out and connect with our young folks to provide them support during this very challenging time. Yeah. Um, if you were to, all the challenges you mentioned, is there any that stand out as, um, most significant and then i would also ask have you identified creative ways that you've gone about to address them i would say that the most pressing and pervasive and continuing concern is around the overall safety of our communities and our families and this is where we are relying on communities locally but also nationally um, in providing this sense of solidarity um, that we are all in this together. And, and this is a very interesting moment as well because COVID-19 not only has exposed the pervasive racism that exists in our society here in the U.S., but it has also uh, shown the, sh the fissures of disparities across many communities. Uh, we are seeing disproportionately how it impacts African-American communities. It's impacting rural communities differently than in urban communities. So these are things that I think we will need to continue to process and think through um, for the long term. How can we address these in a systemic way that prevents us from um, having these tensions that exist when there's a time of crisis. And that's something that uh, I feel like is an opportunity for all of us in this moment um, that we can be working together. And part of that is uh, that this crisis has allowed us this through this isolation, it's allowed us to, or actually forced us to be more creative about connecting with each other. Uh, mm -hmm. And technology, has often been, uh, there's been a lot of conflict around technology and its use, but we're discovering that it's an important tool. And if anything, it's allowing us during this time to utilize it better um, in a more effective way. And, and I think that's gonna be incredibly powerful in how we address those bigger systemic issues in the future where we're able to cross, uh, cross communities around the US connect, to strategize, to plan, to organize, um, and to respond. Um, with that, as we wrap up, thinking about, uh, since a focus of the work you all are doing uh, addresses culturally responsive practices and understanding how culture can be healing for your communities, are there recommendations you would make uh, from a cultural lens or from any lens that would uh, help us address these issues for the future and whether it's dealing with the structural uh, racism issues you described as well as the face-to-face -face encounters of microaggressions what recommendations would you make um, to those who want to address what what the needs are for your communities for our communities that have often been um, straddling two cultures or multiple cultures going back to our roots our heritage our values is a real important centering um, in the time of great challenge and that's where they also and we also find resilience um, we have communities that have faced persecution war and violence as refugee refugees to the u.s mm -hmm. 
those individuals have um, really focused on their own heritage, their culture as a means of healing, as a means of addressing trauma. And that's going to be an important touch point for many of us across our communities um, and how we can get through this and how we can come out stronger in the future. Thank you, Michael. And uh, just want to let you know, our job is to try to make sure other folks learn about the work you're doing, the hard work and the difficult work. And we're praying for you and uh, we're praying that you are able to, you know, bring your wisdom and your knowledge to, to the families. And thank you for sharing with us what it's like. Thank you for this opportunity, Dr. Stevenson. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast. We hope these conversations prompt a deeper commitment to action in the field and in philanthropy to create a society that is fair and equitable for all. For more information about Forward Promise, visit forwardpromise.org or follow us on social media. We're simply Forward Promise on Facebook and at forward underscore promise on Twitter and Instagram.